0: Members
1: of the Prime Minister and Brexit rebels are preparing for an historic parliamentary battle later today. The Prime Minister is proroguing Parliament.
0: There will be ample time for MPs to debate. So this is completely constitutional uh, and proper.
1: Hands up, who wants a general election? I don't want an election. You don't want an election. Any Conservative member of
0: Parliament who votes against the Prime Minister this evening, they should be deselected immediately. These are friends of mine, but we have to get Brexit done. Frankly, I feel a sense of outrage. I think the outrage is phony. He's desperate, absolutely desperate to avoid
1: scrutiny. There must now be an election. There's only one chlorinated chicken.
0: Boris Johnson has suffered a blow to his. Boris Johnson
1: has suffered another significant. Prime Minister lost control of events, or is this all part of his plan? I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Welcome to another episode of Polarised, the RSA's podcast about the big divides in our politics and culture. I'm Ian Leslie.
0: And I'm Matthew Taylor. And so we kind of have to tell you exactly when we're recording this. I'm looking at my watch. It's quarter past five. It's Wednesday, the 4th of September. We have no idea what's going to happen in the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month. So we are going to talk about all this stuff. Uh, but we're going to try to avoid too much speculation, primarily, of course, because we don't want to say something which will be proven wrong uh, before you even hear this program. But also because, you know, in a way, everyone else is doing speculation. So let's try to get to some stuff which is which is real, regardless of what happens in the next uh, two or three days. So we come back from the summer. Uh, you're interested in politics. I'm interested in politics. So this should be.
1: So exciting, we'll tell our grandchildren that we were (laughs) alive at this time. Are you enjoying it? Well... Um, I was thinking about this on, on the way in um, I'm not really enjoying it I'm not enjoying it as much as I should be you know I've been a, a, a somebody a politics junkie or certainly somebody who's like unusually interested in, in politics for most of my uh, life and we're now in a moment of incredible uh, political import and intrigue right huge amount going on and it's all re- really important and uh, it's kind of you can follow it down rabbit holes as as, as far as you like and yet I'm not I'm not really into it. I mean, I, I, I'm starting to follow it, but I'm I just not get getting the kind of buzz that, that, that I'm used to when, you know. So we've got two the theories,
0: because uh, I'll offer you two theories, tell me which one you think is right. So I kind of feel a bit, I do feel a bit the same. So one is, it's a jumping the shark moment. So this is the equivalent of um, when a television series, which you like because it's kind of wacky and zany and extreme and violent and sexy, just goes too far. Yeah, it loses yeah. you. So it's like Call of Duty. It's kind of hang on. Yeah, that's eight police officers shot in the first twenty minutes. You yeah. know, I just there's too much. It's just, what I is this actually
1: all about? What is, is there this? any point to this? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
0: one theory is it's kind of lost its narrative. It's gone over the top, and we just can't relate to it anymore. The other is whose side are you on? I mean, I think there's, that's fine if you're on the Brexit side, and the Boris side, because he's he's great at someone to root for. But if you're on the other side, it's not really yeah clear. It's,
1: it's not um, it's not a clear narrative in in any sense. In that that. I, it's impossible to say to to say with any confidence where it's headed, right? It's it's more complicated and unpredictable than any situation I I, I can remember. And in a good narrative, yeah, you you need someone to root for, someone a, you know someone whose side you are on, right? A hero or heroine of some kind. I can't think of a kind of a, a realistic outcome that I'm really excited about. So that kind of takes a huge amount of the the, the pleasure and 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 the fun out of it. Um, it just becomes this kind of slightly disorienting uh, whirligig. But do you think that's
0: one of the examples of how those of us who are on the kind of progressive wing or London or middle class or whatever, that kind of you know, collection of characteristics... That actually, if I was talking to Brexiteers or talking to working class to- Tories or talking to people in other parts of Britain, they would say, "For once, we've now got a hero. We've got Boris. This is what we need: someone who's willing to smash and crash through whatever needs to be smashed and crashed through." So, is it a kind of a, is it is is this a really good example of how out of touch we are? That for many people, we have finally got a larger than life figure to, 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 to after the kind of rather dismal, sad days of Theresa May.
1: Yeah, and and you, you've got somebody who. Uh, you've got an issue, uh, which is actually very clear. So I, I, and I guess if you are excited about the prospect of either leaving because you really want to leave the EU, which is, you know, a good kind of 30-40% of the country, or seeing an end to this Brexit thing and getting on with it, of course, it's, that's not going to happen, but but which is another kind of 10-20%, um, then actually, yeah, you, you know, Boris is in a strong position because, as we saw with with the referendum itself, it's always better to be on the side of doing something versus stopping something. Yeah. Right. Nearly always, not always, but 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 you know, you, you certainly have the advantages of kind of action and momentum and, and dynamism. Whereas the other guys are all saying, you know, hey, 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 let's slow, slow down, let's let's think about this. That's never a kind of very politically exciting. Position yeah, and today. I
0: noticed that it, when you watch the exchanges. The rebels, the rebel alliance, there's a lot that is about process, about Parliament. But Boris's messages, Boris Johnson's messages, are more direct. They are messages that seem to me more likely to break through. You know, when he talks about the Surrender Bill, for example.
1: There's only one thing that stands in our way. It is the Surrender Bill currently being proposed by the leader.
0: uh, One of the things that kind of hits me about all of the last three years, really, is that there's a couple of, it seems to be, incredibly powerful points that the opponents of Brexit have failed to get across because they've lacked message discipline or they've got sucked away. So I would say two, point, two examples. The first is, never getting across the fact that from very early on, it was clear that there were two, two types of Brexit. I mean, 100 types of Brexit. But, but there was soft Brexit and hard Brexit. It is undeniable you know, if you're talking to Jacob Rees-Mogg or Anne Widdicombe or anybody else, it is undeniable. I heard Anne Widdicombe in the interview the other day, and she was saying there's a huge difference between what Boris Johnson, I think, he, and was saying, I think he'll negotiate May mark too. Uh, we will support Boris Johnson uh, if he continues with
1: his present line, which is it's deal or no deal, but it's still the 31st of October. Uh, but if he starts re-warming up the May deal... Um, which has a lot wrong with it other than the backstop, Uh, then at that point uh, we will not support him and we will fight him.
0: And so the point needs to be made to Anne Widdicom in that context is, well, if you think that a deal is very, very different to no deal then you are recognising there are two different Brexits. And if there are two different Brexits, then clearly in that referendum three years ago, what you had on the one side was remain, which just means remain, and there aren't two different remains, only one. And there were two different Brexits. And so therefore we had a referendum on two options and there are clearly three options. And I think had the Remain side just said that over and over and over again for three years, we had a referendum on two options and now there were three. And therefore we need to find a a, a, find a way for the public to express what they think about three but it seems to me there's never been a about that. And then the second one is one exactly the one you just made, which is Brexit doesn't end when you leave the European Union because then you have to negotiate a deal with the European Union. Yeah. And that message. So yeah, I, I, I watch this and it does seem to me that as has happened pretty consistently, the kind of Brexit side, and Boris Johnson is a very good communicator, consistently have much better narratives that break through to the public than the other side of this debate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly um, inherent to the nature of it. It's sort of it's baked in <laughs> to the Remain you know, side of, of things because, and this was the problem in the referendum. I, I know people say, and and I, I say it sometimes, that Remain fought a poor campaign. They they didn't have a very emotionally powerful message. Certainly not versus take back control. But the truth is, you will really you you can't have as as emotionally powerful a message for for staying in the EU. It, it's a difficult. It's always a difficult message to communicate to, to say. You know, we, we need to pull some of our sovereignty in, in order to gain you know economic and, and other benefits. Whereas just lost we we'll you were saying, be, saying it exactly like, right. <laughs> over. Yeah, yeah. So versus you know I, I, versus saying you know we just need to be off on our own and we'll, we'll be fine. You know that's the kind of. So I, I think they're always uh, fighting an uphill struggle when it comes to really kind of finding a, a distilled, emotionally powerful uh, way of saying, you know.
0: And I think that I was talking to a pollster yesterday and what he said was Boris is playing a blinder in terms of the public, in terms right. of the public he's talking to. He says the people he's talking to, ordinary voters, are saying partly it's not Boris's fault. He's got into this wonderful position where he's both seen to be kind of brave and trying to do it, but it's like, well, it's not your fault in a way that... And may seem to manage to get the blame for everything, really. So, you know, I think this kind of narrative imbalance is, has become even more acute because I think the arguments that are used by the kind of other side of the debate I mean, okay, that, you know, there is the argument about the consequences of no deal, but a lot of the other stuff, it does go over people's heads. Now, you mentioned take back control. And of course, all of us who watched that fantastic television program about the Brexit campaign remember the moment. When uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, who is, pre- is playing Dominic Cummings, and he sees the phrase "take control," do you remember? And he kind of goes forward and writes back in. Yeah. Uh, this, kind of, you know, whether or not that actually happened, but this is the kind of moment. How to change the course of history? You have to hack the political system. Hack it. I'm talking about altering the matrix of politics.
1: Let's take back control. Let's take back control.
0: Now, let's talk about. Dominic cummings. oh because you've written about him uh yeah and um yeah um, and, and he's a kind of fascinating figure in all this i did yeah. an event this morning for the government on ai and i started it off by saying the question about ai is is dominic cummings an ai in the sense that there is this very high level of paranoia that every single thing that's unfolding however chaotic it looks is all part of a master plan Written yeah. on a whiteboard somewhere in number ten, and Dominic
1: Cummings is rubbing his hands together with glee as we walk into every single trap in turn. Even what you just said, Dominic knew you were going to say that. You did, yeah. So I mean, yeah. Are we all living inside Dominic Cummings' simulation? <laughs> um, that, that's, you know, does people already like do. That people people already worried about people, that. People you know? are worried about that. Uh, but then I'm also seeing a lot of. I'm almost seeing more articles saying. People shouldn't be writing so many articles about Dominic Cummings as I'm seeing articles about Dominic Cummings. Um, look, <laughs> you know, we should be well, writing. Well, as out. the author of we one sh- of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm being a bit de- defensive maybe, but we should be talking about it. We should be writing about him because um, I actually can't think of a more powerful uh, advisor. I mean, to to actually quite an extraordinary... You tell me, you, you're, you know, you've know, you sort of been in that in, in that role. It's very rare for a prime minister to outsource quite as much uh, I guess Theresa made it to, to Nick Timothy um but quite as much strategy and tactics to to one figure um I'm not sure there has been a comparable figure in Yeah I
0: mean my impression I mean I worked, when, when I did that role for Tony Blair uh it it, it was for I was giving advice to Tony on the assumption that Tony knew more than I did and that in the end his judgment was the, the was the judgment that mattered one gets the impression that this is in this situation Boris is leaning on Cummings and saying, look, you know more than I do about how to win campaigns and how the public thinks and what's going to happen. But we don't know, really, because we're not not in there. But one of the things that interests me about Cummings, of course, is that the position he occupies in the narrative is a recognisable position. It's the Rasputin position. You know, it's the eminence griefs behind the scenes. And and the function that plays is we like a bit of paranoia. We like the idea. It's part of the, the story. We like the conspiracy notion of this. But also, of course, and you can see this in the Conservative Party, And I saw this with Peter Mandelson with Tony Blair in the kind of early days of New Labour. You can attack him... Because it's less dangerous than attacking the actual boss. So what's going on a bit now in the Conservative Party is that people are unhappy about the threats, and the deselections, they're saying, "Well, it's all Dominic Cummings." Well, of course, it's not Dominic Cummings on Ultimately, he's Boris Johnson. You know, Boris Johnson is his boss. But in the same way, yeah. people used to attack Peter Mandelson because they didn't. It was too dangerous to attack Tony Blair, and they used to go, "If only Tony Blair didn't listen to Peter Mandelson and let, let the inner Tony Blair come out." You well,
1: know. they do. They do it with Jeremy Corbyn and Seamus Milne as oh, well. That's true. You know, Absolutely, um, he's another one. And is that part of the reason
0: you think that? people say there are too many articles written, is that in a sense, it doesn't matter how brilliant Dominic Cummings is. It doesn't matter what he really wants to do. It doesn't matter whether we are playing out his role. Actually, it's a mistake in terms of democracy and accountability because the ultimate concern is,
1: you know, his boss. I think that's true. But I also think that whether or not it's a mistake, the fact is... Uh, he is the guy who seems to be, unless we're misreading things, which you know from from, from the outside, he does seem to be in control of, of tactics and strategy between now and October the thirty first. <laughs> you know, to to, to an extent that, that I don't think is is yeah, precedented. So one of his kind of well strengths and weaknesses on display this week. Strengths are he is a, a, a bold uh, kind of risk taking strategist. Because, by the way, most strategists and most decision-makers fail because they're just not very good at making decisions and taking risks. So, you know, he doesn't have that problem.
0: How are the preparations for a no-deal Brexit coming on? Great. And the, what- simple, the most simple thing is the Prime Minister believes... The politicians don't get to choose which votes they respect. That's the critical issue. And what did you think of Dominic Grieve's assessment of you being arrogant and ignorant and not understanding the British constitution? Um, I don't think I am arrogant. I don't know very much about very much. Mr Grieve, uh, we'll see what he's right about. Thank you.
1: The weaknesses include not being a very good reader of people. So I don't think he's a kind of intuitive psychologist of kind of, the, you know, MPs, people, you know, people around him. And so he didn't perhaps foresee that there'd be quite a big backfire effect to uh, to those moves, that actually people would dig in and be even more defiant. The rebellion was bigger than, than expected. Now, to a certain extent, he might not be bothered about that because he's like, well, you know, inevitably we had to lose those people anyway. And if we're being, you know, forced into... Uh, a, a, to, into an election uh, well fine um, it'll be on, on on our terms but I, I don't think things have gone quite as he expected and I think that I think that's to do with his his sort of slight tin ear when it, when it comes to to reading people and has anyone made
0: the kind of Dominic coming Steve Hilton comparison because that's kind of interesting to me because there are all certain parallels the, yeah. t- the t-shirt wearing oh yeah the maverick and the, and, maverick, the, and the yeah. kind of techni- technocratic maverick but he's got so of-
1: much more power than, than steve hilton who kind of i think you might remember better than me but i think kind of floated around the edges of things trying to get things off the ground and in fact did succeed in getting one or two uh good things off the ground but wasn't as uh central to to cameron's yes operation yeah i mean they
0: what they do share is a, a, a- profound contempt for Whitehall and the way Whitehall works and for the calibre of true. civil servants. In the end, that was one of the reasons Steve Hilton failed so catastrophically was because he couldn't engage he with couldn't the system. Assist- he couldn't make it work. No. Now, that's and, then, true. and the yeah. second it yeah. didn't work, he blamed the system rather than having any capacity for self-awareness and thinking, well, actually, maybe I need to have a different approach. Now, you know, Dominic Cummings I mean, was in the system and you know he had a kind of mixed record in the system yeah. in the sense that Michael Gove was a, a high profile and effective kind of education minister. But as you think, I think you said in the article, the legacy doesn't look that great in yeah. terms of the way the system works and it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there was enough thought given to how you actually get a, a school system that yeah. works.
1: They, and they made real, you know, unforced errors which made life more difficult for them and, and were quite sort of destructive
0: Do you have a system in which you can correct errors quickly, learn from things fast, adjust, which has been one of the great strengths of the Anglo-American system over 200 years, or do you have a system in which bureaucrats and a judicial system entrench ideas in a bureaucracy which is extremely slow to move... But the thing
1: about him in this role is he's got an absolutely clear objective. It's a short-term gig. In fact, you know, he has said, I'll be leaving after October the 31st, yeah. I think, right? That Which plays to his strengths, because actually, he, there's no way he can stick around in a role well, for this campaign for very for long. He's a campaigner. Yeah. Um, he's not a kind of like, you know, have lots of boring meetings in order to make change happen over the long term. He's not a kind of, I'm here to build things, really. He's a kind of, you give me an objective, give me a time span, you know, and I'm, I'm very good at making that happen.
0: Boris Johnson will seek to trigger a snap general election today. There must now be an election on Tuesday the 15th of October. Opposition parties have closed ranks against Boris Johnson's attempt to call a general election. No, we're not going
1: to dance to his tune. We are not going to fall into the trap of handing control back to Johnson and he says, oh, it'll be on the 15th of October. We don't trust him.
0: So let's turn to to one of those objectives. I said we're going to try to avoid speculation, but there'll be an election soon. I think we can be pretty clear about that. I mean, for no other reason than the fact that we've now got a a minority government. And the, the assumption about that election, let's assume that the election takes place without Brexit being resolved at all. The assumption is that Boris Johnson will win that election because he will successfully neuter the Brexit party. He will sweep up the majority, uh, if not all, of the Brexit, kind of 45%. Meanwhile, on the other side of the equation, the uh, Remain parties, the progressive parties, will be divided, and the party that could have emerged from amongst them to be the kind of vehicle for an alternative to Boris Johnson is the Labour Party, because they've got the numbers, they've got the resources, but they have a leader who lacks credibility. That is the kind of prevailing view and the assumption is that one of the reasons Boris would like to get, Johnson would like to get to an election is because of that. Is that just true or is there another angle, do you think, on that?
1: Well, I think it's um, a plausible scenario for the way the election co- will will play out. But I think this is the most complicated and unpredictable situation we've we've been in, you know, this shortly before an election. It may be that... Uh, the Brexit party does not collapse because we haven't actually, All the election will be held before we've left the EU. Maybe that the Brexit party really wants to, you know, hold his feet to the, that Nigel Farage wants to hold his feet to the fire um, and sees this as an opportunity to to actually gain, you know, some MPs. It may also be that, that Corbyn bounces back. He did seem to be, uh, he seemed to kind of increase in, in stature this week, partly because it became this issue of uh, democracy and, 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 you know, uh, process. So it might have been just us kind of in in the bubble, but even so, you know, within the bubble, it did look like he had got a bit more momentum than he has done for for quite a long time.
0: The attack on our democracy in order to force through a disastrous no-deal Brexit is unprecedented, anti-democratic and unconstitutional. (laughs) Labour will do all we can to protect our industry, protect our democracy, protect our people against this dangerous and reckless government. It is more like 2017 than I had kind of really thought, because yeah. you, you have said, and I kind of agree with you, the problem for the Labour Party is that they think 2017 can happen again, and that's why they won't change. But, you know, it is so similar to 2017. You know, it's an election which people think will be about Brexit, but maybe it won't be about Brexit. It's an election where we think the Liberal Democrats will do really well, but they might not do really well. And it could be that a week into it, people are talking about the NHS and schools and inequality – and Jeremy Corbyn has, you know, who's got a much, much, much bigger base than than the Liberal Democrats, has shoved Joe Swinson out of the way.
1: He's the only alternative to Boris, and you, you could be back into twenty seventeen very quickly. And we remember how he kind of bounced back at the last election. I mean, I don't, they don't think his position was quite as as terrible then as it, as it as it is now. It is possible that in the first few days of a campaign
0: this divided vote stops being divided because the general public think, well, hang on, there's only really one way to stop this. And that's what happened in 2017. Yeah, yeah And yeah. it could happen. And
1: and, and and on the other side too. So it could be that you basically go back to, you, the system contracts back into its two-party form. That actually we've been thinking this is going to be a four-way election, therefore incredibly unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it could be over the next few weeks. But you see, people, voters, kind of retreating to, you know, so so uh, leave voters thinking, you know, there's no point voting Brexit. Boris is totally committed to No Deal, and and Labour voters going, okay, well, I've had my flirtation with Liberal Democrats. I don't like Jeremy Corbyn, but this Boris guy is totally crazy, um, and this is the only way to stop him. And you see the 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 logic of first past the post start to reassert itself.
0: So can we? Let's take a, f- a further step back. One of the things people have been talking about this week is, you know, we've torn up the norms. We've torn up the conventions. The kind of unwritten constitution has gone. Do you think that's right? Do you think, in that in the end this is all of the stuff that we learned when we were studying politics at school or whatever is now gone and we're in a completely different world, or do you think we can put the stuff back in the bottle?
1: I don't think it's gone, but I think it's definitely fraying around the edges, and I think that is a a problem, and I think it probably will get worse. You know, it's going to take... So, when people talk about democracy, they usually mean the will of the people, right? So, they're, they're usually talking about voting, and it's quite hard for us to remove ourselves from the intuitive idea that the whole point of democracy is people say what they want and then uh politicians deliver on it which is true in a sense but what that leaves out is all the the stuff in the middle, the institutions, the the, the processes of, of uh, and the norms of, of a representative democracy. And all that stuff can feel a little bit boring, a little bit dry, and a little bit distant from the day-to-day concerns of people. But it's the stuff that actually makes a democracy mm. tick. Um, it's the kind of is the metabolizing system of a, a of a democracy um and once you weaken it and kind of you know it's to start to erase it, then you end up with you know, very strange things happening, and the system just starts to kind of malfunction so yeah, I do think that stuff matters and the the erasure of of those norms and the abuse of those processes is something that I think is a big problem.
0: It feels like a bit there's a playbook here, and the playbook is pitch yourself against the establishment, defining the establishment as anything that really gets in your way, parliament or civil liberties or whatever it might be. And then once you're in power, you just have to continue de- creating the notion of an establishment that is blocking the will of the people. And that's the politics that you, you, you can... And that is a kind of self-fueling politics, but yeah. but arguably quite a problematic politics. Because well, it's problematic it kind of because
1: it's really difficult to, to uh, argue against. It's difficult to stand up for uh moderating processes or you know things that that slow down the action of a, a, an executive that claims to have the will of the people behind it.
0: So I think that's a question good question for us to kind of leave our conversations with which is uh, uh, and I'll give you a bit of grand theory. You, you like my grand theories don't you? I love your grand theories. I live for your grand theories. <laughs> <laughs> we are focused on the specifics of Brexit and parliament and when there'll be an election and all of that but this is happening in the context of a global pattern, and the global pattern is that we have moved into a third stage, that the first stage after the Second World War was you know, the post-war settlement, the things that we associate with that, the growth of the welfare state, the kind of mixed model of, of, of market and state. We then move into the, we have a crisis, the oil crisis, but also that system starts to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, and we move into the neoliberal era, and the neoliberal era becomes kind of hegemonic, And then that starts to have its own contradictions, and then you get the credit crunch, and that starts to signal the end of the neoliberal project being dominant. At least dominant as a set of ideas, it's still the way in which systems work quite a lot. And we've now moved into this third stage, and this third stage is populist nationalism. And just as in a sense, all around the world, in one way or another, between 1945 and 1975, people were doing versions of the post-war settlement, and they may have varied enormously from place to place, but they were, that, was a kind of, that was the default model. And just as from 1975 to 2008, people were kind of playing with models of neoliberalism, we're now moving into this age where it doesn't mean everyone is a populist nationalist, but if you're not a populist nationalist, you're, you're, you're trying to counter it. You're trying to use bits of it without falling into to it as a whole, and that just leaves me with two questions, which I don't think we can answer today, but but maybe we can answer them in future podcasts. The first is, notwithstanding Brexit, if we think populist nationalism is the hegemonic project, maybe Boris Johnson is at the kind of benign end of that. You know, he's talking about putting more money into public services. He's, you know, he he, he doesn't seem like a kind of small state. No, I mean, I think right? comparison
1: with Trump is just misguided, completely ludicrous. Completely, completely ludicrous.
0: So. You know, notwithstanding Brexit, maybe progressives need to think, well, if this is an era of populist nationalism, the Boris Johnson style is, is 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 less problematic than Trump or Oban or whatever. And then the other question, of course, is, well, what comes after populist nationalism? Because it will collapse onto the weight of its own contradictions. Yeah. It will have a moment of crisis. Yeah. And I guess if you were betting on that now, you, you'd probably bet on something which is around environmentalism, new forms of democracy and power and devolving power and kind of quality of life all of these things being linked together and you you just like you got fragments of neoliberalism before the post war settlement collapsed and you got fragments of populist nationalism mm-hmm. before neoliberalism collapsed you can see fragments of this around the question is when will it coalesce maybe that's something we can talk about in a future to... what do you think of my grand theory i
1: think it's um exciting um because it gives us gives us uh, something to look forward to <laughs> I, just, I haven't had in a while. <laughs> so that's it for this episode
0: of Polarised. Yeah, uh, forgive me and Ian for just kind of gassing on about stuff, but, you know, it's back to school, so a bit of self-indulgence. We will be returning in our next episode to bring in guests who bring research and rigour to our conversations. Um, there are plenty more interviews and discussions in our archive. Our guests have included Francis Fukuyama, Extinction Rebellion, David Ronsman, advisors to AOC... Uh, So, um, listen to some of our past programmes. Give us a rating or a review in your podcast app, because that encourages other people to listen. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor, the producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you
1: by the RSA.